Good afternoon and welcome to our podcast. This one about Leibniz and the Leibnizian theory. Leibniz himself is represented in the novel as Pangloss or Dr. Pangloss, who, as we've talked about before, is effectively the philosopher and teacher who Candide bases his life's direction on. Um, and he, as represented, re- representative of Leibniz, is really half uh, Voltaire's reason for writing at the time. Um, Voltaire has such a poor viewing of Leibniz and Leibnizian theory that rather than outright criticise him on an academic stage, he serves to write a novella to completely mock him. Um, but we're not going to talk a lot about Voltaire into the second half of this particular podcast. Rather, we're going to look at um, Leibniz, Pangloss, and sort of what it all means. Jake? Yeah, so Leibniz, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz was a polymath um, who lived a bit before Voltaire. Uh, he passed, He died in 1716. Um, he wrote a text called Theodicy, uh, where he outlined his philosophical view, which is, you know, at the time was termed as philosophical optimism, which is, uh, which looks at the idea that God is an absolutely perfect being, um, and as a result of that, that the world then must be the most perfect choice of all the possible worlds. So um, the Theodicy is written in 1709. Yep, 1709. He looked at three types of evil, the moral, which is sin, the physical, which is pain, and the metaphysical, uh, which is limitations that human beings place. And we're talking this. that this is just coming through an Enlightenment, Correct. Um, an early Reformation sort of period? Absolutely. So he was a devout Catholic and was looking really closely at trying to solve this idea of evil. Why is there evil in the world? Something that religion has struggled with throughout history, trying to explain away evil. Uh, and he came up with a system using reason, which is something that is... Uh, reason is a system of logic that is you know, growing quite quickly mm. in the Enlightenment period. And he has five steps, five simple steps. I feel like some sort of telemarketing thing. <laughs> One. Uh, just before you name them, yeah. sorry. I was just going to say, I think it is perfectly reasonable for us to try to understand the onslaught of evil that exists in the world. How often do we sit down to the nightly news to see a terrorist attack, a child who's been kidnapped or something like that, and we say, why on earth do things like this happen? Absolutely. And, and it's not enough to just say, well, look, there's some nutcases out there, or uh, if we're better people, it'll naturally make the world better. Mm. That's not enough. We, we sort of want a broader answer to it as humans for some reason. Definitely, and the place that people looked in you know, the 1700s and earlier was the church. They're the ones that interpreted the world for you. Um, mm. And so Leibniz, however, at this time, we see the rise of reason and logic and philosophy and all these types of things. And his approach to the problem of evil was that, well, these are things we know. God had the idea for an infinite amount of universes. Two, only one of these can exist because he didn't, they, he didn't believe in multiple universes or these sliding doors ideas and all that sort of stuff. There's no draft. There's it's no draft. Wood copy. Like, bang. <laughs> God yes. uses reason. So the third thing is God uses reason. Therefore, he will select one thing, one world over another, and it will be the best possible one. Because he's all powerful. Because he's all powerful and because only one thing can exist. 
Number four. Yes. God is absolutely good. There's no evil in God. There's no dark side to God. He just is good. Yes. Therefore, because of all those things, his selection must be then the best of all possible worlds. That was the way that he explained away evil. And that's how we get to the point where you know they believe evil. Uh, one of the things I think that he said in theodicy is that uh, he argued that evil was but shadows in a beautiful painting. It helps bring out the colors. You know, e- evil as being this idea that it serves a greater purpose beyond your individual life. Yeah, and is a natural um, part of a decision that's made. So even if you try to make a perfect or best decision, there's naturally going to be an evil element to Yeah, it. negative elements to what you do. No matter what you do, a bit like in The Matrix, that no matter how many times you try to create create the perfect world, there's naturally anomalies at either end. Yeah, that, that, that glitches cause in the, the system, problem. that's right. Yeah, as yeah. if there's, there is a mathematical interpretation of it. Yeah, which links, I think, to that idea of re- the rise of reason and empiricism at the time. Which is new, sort of. Oh, at that time, yeah, 100% new. Just like optimism itself, that word was so new that people... It was obscure for people. So pre-1700, so sort of 17th century, it's just now emerging that we can do things beyond just the hand of God. Correct. We can start to theorise and look at philosophy and possibilities. Right, but often, and certainly with Leibniz in particular, it's trying to be done... Through a theological lens. Yes, because that's, that's required. Everybody absolutely. is a devout Christian, just about in um, Europe. Yes. And I think his idea is that this evil in our world is, is born of the fact that the world cannot possibly meet God's perfection because we're imperfect beings. We sure are. So, yeah, you got that part right. <laughs> so that's where we're at the start. And these are the things that Voltaire is, uh, Voltaire is, what do you call it? Mocking? Mocking, yes. The things, the problems that he has. And so, you know, Pangloss is kind of this distorted or exaggeration version of, of Leibnizian theory. Mm. Um, you know, Pangloss is a philosopher who is his philosophy. He's one dimensional mm. and he's distorted. Yes, and it seems in the story, so if we transfer Pangloss into the actual story, he lives effectively uncriticised within Westphalia. He is the guy, the academic. So um, he's like the very smart kid in class who you go to for the answers. Hmm. Um, It appears that not only does he educate Candide, he is responsible for the education of the whole court and... Only problems seem to start to arise after they've left. Yeah, that's right. And that at that point that his theory starts to fall down. So I think Voltaire at the start there is attacking this the, the ignorance and complacency in Leibnizian theory. Yes. If all you know, all is well in my corner of the world. And you know, the sloppy argument that Candide makes at one point where he says Pangloss is the greatest philosopher in the country, Westphalia. Yes. So therefore he must be the best in the world which is a ridiculous statement to make. That's, that's a ridiculous leap of logic that you've never been anywhere else in the world, Candide, so how can you possibly know that he's the best in the world? But that's what Voltaire is saying, that Leibnizian thought that's the way it operates. That's how its logic works. But That's, uh, that, that's true, but if you take page four, he's not just given to academic sort of um, uh, theorising all of the time because it says that... Um, Cunegonde, 
notices Dr. Pangloss giving a lesson in experimental physics to her mother's chambermaid, a very pretty and tractable little brunette. In the bushes, no less. In the bushes. Mm. So he's, um, he's not just a nerdy philosopher. Um, he does appear to sort of um, enjoy himself, you might say, with some recreation. I think he's self-aware enough, and we yes. certainly find it by the end that he is. Yes. He knows he's on a good wicket there in Westphalia. Correct. And so he just goes around smacking them to all parts. Yeah, but if you want to look at the criticism that exists by Voltaire, you only need to look at um, this criticism of him having a go at the hyper-rational, which is the little bit about the nose and the glasses. um, That is it noses were invented so that they could have glasses to sit on or something like that. Um, there's constantly criticism of this idea that you can rationalise anything. So you can ask a question like, why does this exist? Hmm. And there's an answer. And there's a clear answer because God wanted it that way. What's the quote? Yeah, the quote is, observe how noses were formed to support spectacles. Therefore, (laughs) we have spectacles. spectacles. Legs are clearly devised for the wearing of breeches. Hmm. Therefore, we wear breeches. Yeah. Stones were formed to be hewn and made into castles, hence his lordship's beautiful castle, for the greatest baron in the province must perforce be the best housed, and since pigs were made to be eaten, we eat pork all year round. And this just keeps going on with this nonsense, these weird leaps of logic, which we see a little bit further on, you know, completely ignore any sort of empirical evidence, um, which is one of Voltaire's big things, because empiricism... Uh, we're certainly on the rise at this time, along with rational thought and logic. And this is how Voltaire picks apart um, Panglossian theory. Because he ignores all the disasters that befall him. Pangloss does. Mm. He gets venereal disease. He gets his home destroyed. Yes. He gets hung. Doesn't die, shockingly. Mm. Um, Etc. You know, all these things happen to him. But things are still all good as far as he's concerned. Um the first really good example of rubbish logic we see is page 14, when they're on their way to Portugal, I believe, with Jacques the Anabaptist. Yes. This is earthquake time. This is earthquake time. So I yeah. think page... Actually, no, page... Yeah. Page, actually, no, page 13, we see Jacques die first. Yes, that's um, right. And I think this here, we see Voltaire, you know, criticising in Leibnizian thought, the passive acceptance of the world as the way it is. Yes. You know, why make an effort to change anything evil or wrong if it's like that for a reason, for a greater good of some description? Um, Before you even go to that bit, at the very beginning of that chapter, chapter 5, so I've underlined a couple of things here at the start of chapter 5. It says, Half of the passengers weakened and expiring from the inconceivable agonies that the rolling of a vessel induces in the nerves of humours of a body... That was one half of them. The other half shrieked and said their prayers. Now, there's this idea that half can actually experience normal functioning without thinking about Mm. it, that their actual physical attributes or or what happens to their feelings um, are physical things. The other half automatically move their shock and horror to prayer. God will look after that. Um, And that's effectively um, maybe a comment on the kind of world that exists if there was ever anything that was going to be dangerous scary or difficult to 
explain, you move straight to God. You say your prayers immediately. Yeah, God and the church were the places to explain things and to protect you, and they were the they were the the facilitator for your entire life. Yes, effectively. Um, we'll probably jump over a little bit of the violent stuff because we've said that in a previous yeah. episode. Um, but I just I really got to love how vulgar a little bit about uh, he was caught in midair by a piece of broken mast and left dangling. Um, this is a, a description mm. of exactly what happened. The sailor, the yeah, poor that's sailor, right, to the sailor, the good Jacques, who's our Anabaptist, who'd saved, um, who'd saved Candide, who'd healed and repaired Pangloss mm-hmm. to almost his former glory, just missing an eye and an ear. Uh, the good Jacques runs to the assistance of the sailor, hauls him back on board, and in doing so, is himself pitched into the sea in full view of the sailor, mm. who leads him to drown without even a backward glance. <laughs> Nice bloke. Yeah. Candine runs up and sees his benefactor resurface for a moment before being engulfed forever. Dead. He tries to jump in after him. Pangloss the philosopher prevents him. This is one of the odd times where he's actually called Pangloss the philosopher. Yeah. I think deliberately so. Yeah, arguing fun at yeah. Here, yeah. Arguing that Lisbon Harbour was built expressly so that this Anabaptist should one day drown it. <laughs> Which is such a ridiculous leap of logic. Mm. It is outrageous. And I think that's the point that Voltaire's trying to make, how ridiculous that is, that Lisbon Harbour was built expressly to drown one Anabaptist. Yeah, so the the criticism here or the um, satire that's presented here is a word that you'll no doubt look up immediately, which is called providentialism. Mm. And that means that God's will is evident in all circumstances. And this is another one of those criticisms, like the glasses and the bridges that were spoken about before. This idea that providentialism can be found in everything is completely mocked um, in what, it, what is a number of different satirical moments by Voltaire. The irony, of course, is that Pangloss, in fact, saves Candide. Mm. So if the uh, bay itself, the port, was designed to drown the Anabaptist, that, that's providential, that's God wanted it to be that way, but he stops the free will of Candide in jump, jumping in, therefore, in fact, um, preventing a potentially providential moment from a certain way of criticising it. I, I cite that as an example of irony. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And I think I find that part in particular really interesting, mainly because he sort of follows it up really quickly with another example straight away, he kind of lets Pangloss continue with his um, illogical arguments. And he talks about how the only people that survived the shipwreck are Pangloss, the brute of a sailor who should have drowned, but instead drowned their virtuous Anabaptist. Mm. I think that's the point. And there again, he's like, this is where the satirical aspect comes in. An Anabaptist is someone who comes to religion late, who chooses it. Why would God allow someone like that to drown and die. Where is yeah. the goodness in that? It doesn't exist. It can't be there. Yeah. Um, but we see over the page that Pangloss again, they have, we have the earthquake, which is interesting because it shook religious belief at the time because people struggled to explain away the earthquake. Tens of thousands of people died. Mm, it's Why? Weird. How can this be a positive thing? Um, Pangloss explains it away as him saying that there must be a seam of sulphur running underground from Lima to Lisbon on the basis that there was an earthquake in Lima not that long ago, and now there's one in Lisbon. So 
There must be a seam of sulfur between the two, otherwise this is, it could not have happened. You hear Candide just backs him up straight away and says, nothing is more likely, but for the love of God, some oil and wine. And it's really funny, Pangloss ignores the fact he, he doesn't live in reality, and I think that's the point he's making here. Pangloss doesn't live in reality. Candide's there dying, he's been injured, some masonry has fallen mm. on him, and Pangloss is still living in this world of illogical arguments. Because Candide says that about nothing is more likely... Or sure. give me some oil and wine to make me feel better. And instead, he instead of getting him that, he says, what do you mean likely? <laughs> That's right. I regard the thing as proven purely yes. because I've said so. Yes, and it, it really throws back to the beginning of that chapter where half the people are into the physical reality of a scenario. The other half move themselves to prayer. In that very discussion, Candide is lying there with potentially life-threatening injuries mm. and says, can someone get to fixing my injuries? And Pangloss is only interested in talking through his theory. Yeah, um, which it, completely lacks any kind of proof of any form or shape. Yeah. And that's the point that Voltaire's trying to make. Yes, it's shoddy logic. It's not steeped in science, and there's no empirical evidence to support what he's saying. That's right. All he's doing is finding two natural disasters and just joining them with a made-up sulfuric acid... Scene. Scene, yeah. Allegedly, yeah. And from there, we see... Pangloss then run into another one of Voltaire's targets, and that is a religious fanatic. Uh, and then we get into a whole criticism of religious fanatics, which we've kind of seen a little bit earlier, but now, once we get to Portugal and go a little bit further, we see a lot more of this kind of criticism. But we see an interaction between an agent of the Inquisition, which you know were religious fanatics of the church, in Spain in particular, who went around murdering effectively and, and hunting down heretics, mm. those people that had blasphemed against God or who thought things different from what the church mandated that you could talk about or that you could believe. And the Inquisitor has a conversation with Pangloss who seems completely unaware that he's speaking to someone who will not like his point of view. Yeah, that's all. right. There is an arrogance about Pangloss's um, theory, which I'm sure Voltaire wants to paint because he just like, he wants to criticise Leibnizian theory as much as he can, even though Leibniz as a guy is dead. The very idea that anybody would follow this academic pathway to him, I imagine, is incomprehensible. Mm. He's also, um, in terms of shaping those views and values you want to talk about with an author, his past or the past of Europe is shaped by Spanish, the Spanish Inquisition. Um, we've, you've got to know about that as a student in order to understand the fear that's around Catholic fanaticism or Christian fanaticism. We're talking people queued up and asked to provide evidence that they are, in fact, God-loving. Um, and we're, we're talking about it starting in the late 15th century and it's sort of following generations of the church through in Spain. And, you know, there's estimates of up to 150,000 people. Mm. 150,000 people mm. being charged with this crime. Think of any crime that 150,000 people could be charged with. It, it, it's devoid of logic. Um, and around 5,000 people being executed. And that's what we then see a little bit further on with the order to fair, which we won't go into because we covered that in the previous podcast. Yes. Um, but I think it's probably really good to look at this clash here between this religious fanaticism and almost philosophical fanaticism, I suppose, of Pangloss, um, where the Inquisitor says, 
to Pangloss yes. that it would seem that you actually to Pangloss it would seem that you do not believe in original sin for as if if everything was as well as you say then therefore there would be no fall nor punishment so we would never have been kicked out of the Garden of Eden yes so original never sin been, nev- never exists never exists yes um, and Pangloss counters this very politely mind you uh, saying that these events, the fall of man and Adam's curse, mm. are necessary for the best of all possible worlds. We see the Inquisitor return about the idea, well, then you obviously don't believe in free will, because yes. then God obviously decided that Adam was gonna, uh, Eve was going to eat the apple and they would then be punished as a result. Pangos still continues, not realising that he's being set up to be... Yes, hence... Yeah, exactly. Destroyed. So, hence the ellipsis. He, he trails off and is clearly... Um, I don't know, hit over the head or arrested or whatever by this agent um, as an inquisitor. It, it interests me again that in this case, the fact that there's um, uh, a guy trying to argue religious uh, philosophy is overcome by physical reality. Mm. And that is the very case that he's either knocked out or arrested or something here. And that's just like, it, it doesn't matter how well you explain this. It doesn't matter how... Cause Pangloss's theory is un- you, you can't question it. There's no way. If it's true, it's unquestionable, hmm. isn't it? Yeah. Because everything happens for the best possible reasons because God is not fallible. That's right. And I think the, the good thing I like about this section is that I think Voltaire is trying to, trying to highlight for the reader at the time that this religious fanaticism and the Nietzschean theory are not compatible. These two things can't go together. And equally, they're both ridiculous. Yes, they're both ridiculous and they're incompatible. Yeah. So he's kind of trying to say to people, well, they're both preposterous. You can't believe in either. Yes. And how is Leibniz trying to, trying to crowbar this philosophy into Catholicism? It's just not a thing that can be done. And it, it's a point that we get to in conversations that we have with friends and family about the origins of the world. But we're actually going back now, it seems, with some sort of scientific... Uh, empirical evidence, these guys are looking at an origin of philosophical worlds, of religious theological worlds, saying, well, my way is correct because I believe that God himself is infallible and Mm. makes the best decisions possible all the time. Whereas the other guy is saying, well, no, that's not true. At the start, we sinned and therefore we require absolution. And quite um, Voltaire-like, he doesn't criticise these, he doesn't point out what's wrong with them, he merely puts these two theories up against each other mm. in a match that demonstrates their, the fallibility of that philosophy. Yes. And to his credit, it's quite funny, really, when you see what the outcomes are of it. Um, if you look at the very start of Chapter 6, he continues to over-exaggerate everything by saying that the earthquake itself had destroyed destroyed three quarters of Lisbon, but that the sages of the country decided that the only way that this was to be understood was by basically putting people to the Inquisition, Um, which is, again, a physical and a religious sort of philosophical argument being presented in one little bit. Well, the idea of an auto de fair was it means an act of faith it was punishment, usually by execution, depending on how bad the things you said were. Mm. Uh, if you survived, then God said that was okay. 
Yeah. And if you didn't, then you deserved, you were heretical and you deserved to go to hell. <laughs> yes. So given are... the realities of the world, the physical world, you're going to die. That's right. Um, so, look, that effectively that is the overview of um, Leibniz. The, the thing I find funny about Leibniz, and I mean funny in a peculiar way, is that if you read the logic of it all, it kind of, in a strange way, makes sense. Like, it's hard to pin down as wrong. The only way to pin it down as wrong is to show all the stuff that happens in life. Yeah, absolutely. Because on paper, it looks great. Sounds good. I like it. It almost makes me think of, you know, people in in a modern context, almost, seeing, you know, the silver linings in negative events that happen to people. Oh, good things happen for a reason, or bad things happen for a reason. Bad things happen for a reason. You know, there's that whole idea of everything happens for a reason. You know, there's a a bigger plan there. Yes. People do that all the time. Yes. And we even see that in... You know, modern commentators. Um, yeah, or, sure. Like like Andrew Bolt or people who just sort of... Um, I suppose he doesn't quite pick up on things, bad things happen for a reason, but without much empirical evidence, he'll happily label, uh, I, I don't know, like um, Islamic... Um, Islamic... Uh, Culture. Or immigration oh. as being problematic for... Um, the the dangers of terrorism in our society, you know, two things that are current and on the discussion table, but putting them together without very much empirical evidence at all, and saying that that is something that should be investigated, and that's how we should go about it. There's this sense that this is a philosophical understanding of where we need to go, um, and there's lots of those in all academic theories, I suppose in. Um, in, in economics and in politics, there's always mm. these ideas that are sort of made up by their um, academic um, scholar, but then borrowed by the people in charge to say, well, this is how it needs to be. Um, there's a, a section towards the end that we wanted to refer to where we talk about the philosophy that is put together of Pangloss versus Martin. Now, Martin is a guy who is a philosopher, but he's experienced life. He yeah. Well, he's the antithesis to y- Pangloss. Yes, and his experience is, I've been through lots of events all the time, and I've decided I'm going to be pessimistic about humans and events. Yep. About the world. Yeah, and I'm go- not going to expect the best in anyone. I'm not going to believe that this is the best of all possible worlds. In fact... My life's been pretty shitty, and I'm going to expect it to continue along as such. So I'm setting the bar low. Um, And they do have almost a hilarious conversation, um, but it does reek of ideology, um, and it reeks of stubborn ideology that exists Mm. in, I suppose, the orthodox dogma of looking at religion, and that's what's on display here. And I think that Candide, I think that Candide, this blank canvas of ours, mm. our blank canvas of a protagonist, he's stuck between the two. <laughs> and those last few chapters is him trying to decide on which side does he fall. But I think in the end he comes to his own conclusions, which I think we then finally see a three-dimensional Candide rather than a one-dimensional one. But that's for another episode. The Definitely. very last thing we see for Pangloss... And we'll look at Martin, actually, in the next episode, too. Mm. But I think Voltaire's final sort of say on Pangloss is 
I love this quote. It, it, it speaks to the hypocrisy and the disdain with which Voltaire sees Leibnizian theory. That's right. And he says, Pangloss conceded that he had suffered horribly all his life, but having once maintained that everything was going splendidly, he would continue to do so while believing nothing of the kind. Yeah, and this is a straight label of Leibnizian theory as any of these daft, blind, stupid... Hypocritical. Yeah, all of that. Um, Devoid of reality. Yeah, if you're looking for that, that's on page 91, um, and it's just after the woman, the old woman talking through the horrors of her life completely. Um, There's plenty more of these uh, contradictions and um, criticisms and funny little pithy bits... They're worth um, looking at. There's a bunch of words that are going to go along with this that you'll find in class, but you want to be expert at some of these little bits. So if they come up in a um, closed uh, passage activity, that you're able to grab them, use them, and even sort of chunk those little words mm. that are important, like auto defer or um, or philosophy or providentialism or any of those sort of things. If you can speak about them, you can actually interrogate the time period itself and look at the views and values that existed then because there's no point really measuring it against us now. Um, all we can provide is examples of, uh, I suppose, comparisons to us now, but in your investigation of this text, you have to be able to investigate it for the time period, what was popular, what was happening, and what was going on in academic theory. Uh, thank you for joining us this evening and thank you, Mr Gasparini. You're most welcome. It's always a pleasure. And enjoy your reading.